good afternoon, everyone. And a warm welcome from warm and humid Singapore. And welcome back to the episode three of our Bridging the Gulf public education series, which is aimed to help the public better understand the Gulf region. Today's episode is on Saudi Arabia. And with us today, we have our distinguished speaker, Iman Al-Hussein, who will be presenting a webinar entitled Beyond Oil and Dates, Saudi Arabia's Past, Transition, and Future. My name is Clemens Che, and I am the host throughout this series, and I'm also a research fellow at the Middle East Institute, Singapore. Today, we want to talk about the socioeconomic transformation in the kingdom, as well as the historical and religious role that Saudi Arabia has played in the Arab world since the founding of the third Saudi state. Of course, you know, in the public, we have stereotypes, you know, such as, you know, about the conservative society that Saudi Arabia has, and, and also about the oil that the kingdom has. And last week, we had Dr. Lee Chen Sim, who talked a bit about the myth in the Gulf. And, and, and today, we will carry on to have a very country-specific focus on Saudi Arabia. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Ms. Iman today. So the past five years under Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the kingdom has witnessed tremendous changes. And I would like to share my screen to show some of these latest changes. So you may be wondering why there is a lavender field here. So the, the tendency for us to think about, you know, when we think about lavender fields, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind, okay, Provence in France, perhaps, you know, those are the, the lavender fields that we are familiar with, we are so used to seeing. But, you know, just, just yesterday in the news, really, um, Saudi Arabia announced that it will be changing the color of its ceremonial carpets from the color red to purple. Now, now, what was the significance of this change, you might ask? So really, it's about, you know, echoing that desert landscape in spring, and, and, and the lavender that blooms in the, in the desert landscape in Saudi Arabia. So you might think it's, it's a mismatch uh, to have a camel and within, and within the desert and you have uh, lavender as well. So, but this is the move that, the kind of move that Saudi Arabia has been going for to sort of transform itself and reinvent itself as a major tourist attraction, not only within the kingdom, but also for tourists. So it is said that, through this move to change the ceremonial color of the ceremonial carpets, it's a symbol as well of Saudi generosity. So you might think when we think of the Gulf and the other states of the region, we tend, we tend to think about you know, a very brown landscape, you know, sand, deserts, but really, you know, we have to realize that these are they have urbanized cities and suburbs, and, and this runs from Jeddah in the west through to Riyadh and eastward to the Damam, Hobar, Tehran, urban belt. So these are the kind of uh, landscapes or aerial views that you would see upon visiting the kingdom. What else, you may ask, you know, in its efforts to, to boost international tourism? Well, um, firstly, you know, we are so, as you see on the top right-hand corner of your screen, you know, in Singapore, we are so used to talking about a cruise to nowhere. This has been the hype of these days. You know, you take the cruise, but you don't really go to a specific destination. You, you hang about on the sea and then you just enjoy the facilities. But what has Saudi Arabia done? So 
it has tried to boost tourism on the Red Sea and it has signed uh, a deal with this company called MSC Cruises. And it is going to have its home port in Jeddah. And from November, 2021 through till March, 2022, the first cruise will set sail you know, as, as a holiday cruise. So you see the kind of um, promotion and advertising and publicity that the kingdom is going for, but also Al-Ula. Al-Ula, as you can see, is the archaeological site that is uh, reminiscent of, of Petra in Jordan or Wadi Rum, perhaps. But really, it's another area that the kingdom is looking to develop as an archaeological research site and also having a cultural master plan for rediscovering prehistoric Arabia, such as uh, you know, the history of incense or the history of the Arabian horse. So these are the kind of projects that the kingdom is working on. There are also numerous publications uh, about the kingdom, as you can see on your screen, uh, running from the rise of the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, to, to you know, sentiments on the ground, such as being young, male and Saudi by Mark Thompson, which uh, we had him for over for a book talk as well, to about urbanization and joy riding, you know, in, in the country as a, as a venting point and as an outlet and avenue to de-stress. So these are the kind of publications that you should be looking out for if you're interested in, in the developments uh, in the kingdom. But of course, with us today, we have our distinguished guest, Ms. Imana Hussein, who herself has written many commentaries. And one of the, one of the most interesting thing, I, which I think Singaporeans can relate to is, is about yoga and self-awareness. One, one of her recent pieces where she talks about, because there's this whole idea about moderate Islam, you know, there's, there are you know, social media influencers who are getting prominent, you know, developing um, self-improvement classes, and yoga classes, and, and, and this is also the kind of trend that we are seeing in Singapore. So I, I thought that, you know, this was very, very interesting. I, and I think this is something she will also mention later in, a, in the presentation. So I, I won't go too much in detail. But let me introduce our speaker for today. Ms. Iman Al-Hussein is a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. And her research focuses on Saudi Arabia and, and the Gulf region. Uh, Ms. Iman was previously a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a research fellow at King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies in Riyadh. She holds an MA in Gulf Studies from Exeter University, and she's currently based in Oslo, Norway. So before I hand over to Ms. Iman Hussein, I would like to, to ask a question about, you know, how, how did Saudi Arabia develop its historically religious role as the anchor in, in the Arab and, and Muslim world. So over to you, Ms. Imana Hussein. Thank you so much, Clemens, for this uh, great introduction. I'm very honored and happy to be here and speaking to you all. And yeah, definitely, I think the best way to answer your question is to um, maybe look at the um, uh, history of Saudi Arabia and specifically the first Saudi state. Now, let me uh, show you this. I'll, I'll try to share my um, uh, slides with you. Yeah, perfect. Sorry about that. <laughs> so going back to your question, um, definitely the best way to look or understand the um, transition or the uh, history and the relationship between the uh, political and the religious alliance between um, uh, and Saudi Arabia is to uh, look at the Saudi state. Um, in 1744, there was a religio-political alliance between Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab, 
who was a religious scholar and Mohammed bin Saud um, in Daraya, which is the photo or the, uh, this uh, small town that you see here. Um, this alliance was very important because it started a kind of a division of labor. Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab was of course a religious scholar. He was in charge of the uh, religious uh, sphere or religious issues, whereas Mohammed bin Saud um, was in charge of politics. Now, uh, this alliance allowed conquest under the pretext of da'wah. So you might ask um, why da'wah, um, you know, definitely most of the population in Saudi Arabia at that time or the Arabian Peninsula were Muslims. But at that time, of course, due to the high illiterate rate, um, it was believed that many of the people who were practicing Islam weren't practicing it correctly. And this is one of the ideas Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab or the uh, attempts of Muhammad Abdul Wahab was trying to do is to purify the faith of people who were um, living in these uh, or scattered around these towns and uh, villages. So. Um, uh, what happened uh, is um, uh, the allowance allowed Mohammed bin Saud a greater um, uh, political significance because he managed to go and conquest more land and so on. Of course, the state expansion reached its limit eventually, and it was ended by the Ottoman Empire. Now, um, six years later, um, the Saudi state was again funded by Turkey bin Abdullah. Um, but the uh, the issue with the second Saudi state is that there were so many family rivalries at that time between brothers, cousins, uncles, and nephews. Um, Mohammed bin Rashid, who was the Emir of Hail at that time, took over Riyadh in 1891. Of course, there was uh, there was a rivalry between the Al Saud family and the Rashidis, who were mainly in Hail. So uh, when that happened, uh, Imam Abdul Rahman bin Faisal bin Turki. Uh, the last uh, imam or uh, of the Saudi state fled to Kuwait. He's the one you see uh, now on this slide. Now his son um, is King Abdelaziz. And this is of course uh, his photo. He managed to uh, capture Riyadh in 1902. Uh, of course, you know, we also have to look at the British influence at that time. And of course, it, it kind of allowed um, uh, the expansion of the third Saudi state. The British were very much, uh, their influence was growing at that time to counter the Ottomans. And uh, King Abdelaziz uh, relied on the ulama or religious scholars in countering his rivals. His history is fascinating and there is so much to read about. So I, I recommend for those who are interested to go and uh, read um, about how he managed to do it to do that. And then of course he declared the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in 1932. Now, um, one of the interesting uh, aspects of this uh, period is how uh, the uh, partnership kind of shifted between from Britain to the United States. Um, of course, Britain's influence on internal issues uh, in the Arabian Peninsula played a key role in uh, uh, King Abdelaziz's expansion. He managed to capture Hail in 1921 and then capture Hejaz in 1925. And he signed a treaty with Britain uh, in Jeddah in 1927, which 
uh, kind of um, recognized his expanding role. But then again, uh, the declining hedge revenues, which were very important uh, for the state, uh, of course, due to a world economic depression, um, made King Abdelaziz look for other sources of income. And of course, in other Gulf co uh, countries or states, you have you know, attempts to find oil. So he wanted the the British to uh, do that. And there are so many fascinating anecdotes about how the Brits, uh, how Britain was uh, reluctant to actually look for oil in Saudi Arabia, which eventually gave the right to the Americans in 1933. And that was the beginning of the decline of the British influence. Um, of course, maybe some of you know about the very interesting meeting that happened between uh, President uh, Roosevelt in 1945 uh, and King Abdelaziz, which marked the beginning of this strong U.S.-Saudi alliance. And of course, this wasn't really only about oil. It was about, you know, allowing the U.S. to use Saudi ports. It was about also allowing the U.S. to have um, air bases in Saudi Arabia. I found a very, um, yeah, so this is the iconic photo of this meeting. And I also found a very interesting video of the, um, of the, of this meeting that uh, maybe we can watch together. Let's just try to play that. Yeah. Okay. Conclusion to the historic Yalta conference as a plane carries President Roosevelt to Egypt to solidify ties in the Middle East. Then representing Saudi Arabia comes King Ibn Saud and a destroyer put at his disposal. The first U.S. vessel of its kind to pass through the Suez Canal during this war. The ship's vast decks are covered with rich oriental rugs. It's the first time in the life of King Ibn Saud that he has left his country's own soil. On his 800-mile trip from the Red Sea port of Jeddah, he is accompanied by 48 men, among them his sons and many famous sheiks. The Arabian monarch goes aboard the president's cruiser to be received amid impressive and colorful ceremonies. This conference was no doubt among the most important of these meetings and presumably centered on the vastly important question of oil, the potential American development of the oil concession granted by the king. Meanwhile, as the two leaders talk, the king's party have a look at the cruiser. Their flowing garments and turbans add a picturesque note to the conference. But Navy preparations for dinner are as humdrum as ever. Final phase of new meetings in the Middle East. One more allied step toward total victory and a lasting peace. So, um, this is quite interesting. and. Uh... It takes me to my next slide. Yeah. So um, when King Abdelaziz uh, passed away, um, he made sure that the uh, succession will go horizontally. So the first person, of course, was the crown prince, who became obviously king when King Abdelaziz uh, uh, died. It was, of course, his son, Saud. Uh, Saud took over in 1953, and um, his era was very much clouded by financial problems. Um, and of course, this uh, eventually led to the abdication uh, or his abdication under pressure from uh, 
Faisal at that time. Faisal was quite um, interesting because he was known for modernizing the kingdom and, of course, developing the economic infrastructure. Um, he introduced girls' education, especially in the central part of Saudi where girls' education was very much uh, frowned upon. Uh, he also fostered a pan-Islamic policy to counter pan growing pan-Arabism at that time. Um, I, th I think one of the things that King Abdel Faisal is uh, very much known for is the oil embargo. Now, of course, the oil embargo really increased the prices of oil, which really made Saudis uh, enter the oil boom. And many Saudis remember that era very much. Uh, when he was assassinated in 1975, uh, Khalid took over. And of course, Khalid's era was very much known by the three dramatic things that happened in 1979, the siege of Mecca by Chiman al-Atabi, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and the Iranian revolution. And I think really these, um, uh, these uh, of course, uh, domestic, regional, and regional maybe uh, events um, uh, their, their impact really didn't materialize until King Fahad era. And during King Fahad's era, we had the height of the Sahwa movement. Uh, of course, the prices of oil crashed, so we had real austerity. The first time Saudis felt austerity after enjoying the oil boom. Uh, also, we had uh, the Gulf War, uh, the uh, Iraq invasion of uh, Kuwait, September 11th attacks, and of course, uh, the uh, war on Iraq. But uh, King Fahad suffered a stroke uh, in the 1990s, and to a, to, to a certain extent, King Abdullah, his brother, was more or less in charge even before he, he died. So. Um, King Abdullah, of course, took over in 2005, but as I said, he was um, more in charge even before then. But I think because of the September 11th attacks, and they, of course it had a dramatic impact uh, on also inside Saudi Arabia, uh, eventually debates were allowed to flourish because um, for, for a long time, and especially in the 19, 1990s and the 1980s, um, uh, the religious discourse was very much not only static, but it didn't really allow room for debate. So um, more and more, and especially in the beginning or the early 2000s, you see Saudis intellectuals talking, uh, countering uh, assumptions and religious uh, beliefs and so on. And I think that it was a very important period to have or to witness this kind of very important development in the intellectual discussion. He also started the National Dialogue in 2003, which was also very important because, you know, Saudi Arabia is a vast country and there are, of course, different sectarian, uh, social, and of course, uh, all kinds of groups there. So so this really allowed people to talk. And I think even one of their discussions was on the issue of women. So I think they really covered so many important topics, uh, especially in the beginning. He also nurtured nationalism. And I think this is quite interesting because it really started with King Abdullah. He, um, he uh, made the Saudi uh, National Day a public holiday because before uh, Saudis were not really allowed to um, celebrate it, uh, religious scholars uh, believed that, you know, we only have two uh, um, uh, uh, holidays and or you know two uh, celebrations in Islam the Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha and we shouldn't you know have a third celebration but he made the national day a public holiday in September to be celebrated on, in September. He had also um, social reforms um, that were um, uh, maybe um, 
uh, not so many, but it was the beginning of social reforms, uh, and especially um, which allowed really more visibility of women. I remember even when um, at, at his time, uh, women were allowed to uh, issue identity cards. And uh, that was very fascinating because uh, for lots of women didn't have identity cards at, at that time. So I remember going and issuing one myself on the off office was quite small and brand new and no one was there uh, no one was issuing identity cards because women didn't want to because they didn't want to have their photos on the cards but then when i went 10 years later to um renew my card the office was huge and it was full so things obviously you know picked up and changed eventually so it's, it was quite interesting but on the other hand um and due to the arab uprisings uh we we witnessed at that time also a changed um foreign policy. Um, in 2014, Saudi introduced a anti-terrorism law. Uh, this law was, of course, um, quite interesting because it listed the Muslim Brotherhood, the Daesh, and other um, uh, um, religious groups as terrorist organizations. Um, and of course, uh, the prices of oils were, uh, or oil was very high, and that allowed the government to spend so much. But of course, they crashed later on in 2014, just by the time uh, King uh, Salman took over. So uh, King Salman's period is very interesting because it is a, a transitional period. It's of course, allowed the second generation or the grandsons to be in the line of uh, succession. Um, Mohammed bin Nayef, the person you see in the middle, uh, was uh, the crown prince until uh, 2017. And Mohammed bin Salman uh, was the deputy crown prince at that time, but now he is the crown prince. Uh, um, I remember in the beginning of 2015, it was a major restructuring period of the government bodies and so on. Uh, and of course, it became, uh, or the Saudi foreign policy became even more assertive. Uh, the launch of the war in Yemen is, of course, one uh, example of that. And the Saudi-US relations really were interesting because it was also, um, it was during Obama's era that King Salman took over. And of course, in that year also, we saw the signing of the uh, Iran nuclear uh, deal, which of course Saudi Arabia was not happy about. And when Trump took over, obviously the relationship got, got eventually warmer and better, and Saudi Arabia felt that it had finally the US support. Um, now, I think one of the important things that um, uh, Hamid, uh, or Prince Mohammed bin, uh, bin Salman did, was introduce uh, Vision uh, 2030. Uh, Vision 2030 uh, was announced in 2016. Um, it's basically a roadmap to post oil economy. Um, the vision is, um, I think, uh, came in at the right time because Many Saudis at that time were worried about, you know, future without oil. What will happen if oil doesn't become important anymore? And of course, the prices of oil crashed at that time. So all of these really were um, concerning to the Saudi population, especially the, uh, the youth. So um, the vision is, a, as I said, is a very ambitious uh, program. And um, it had so many interesting um, ways to um, uh, 
uh, to seek or to um, uh, find obviously non-oil revenues. So one of them is of course um, uh, establishing tourism and um, uh, entertainment events, which at that time was uh, quite fascinating because uh, the religious uh, authority was very strong. So uh, he had to curb the power of the religious police. He had to establish key commissions and authorities like the entertainment uh, commission uh, to um, uh, develop and introduce entertainment events. Uh, there are plans to uh, develop also mega projects. And as I said, attract tourism, uh, foreign and of course, um, religious tourism as well. And I think allowing women more uh, opportunities in the workforce is also one of the um, uh, visions or objectives of the vision. And I think they've done that uh, very well. And of course, the emphasis on the capital um, uh, or Riyadh uh, in doubling its size. And one of the uh, things that they've been also working on is introducing moderate Islam, which I'll be talking about in a bit, but I see that uh, Clements has his uh, hand raised. So I'll, uh, if you have a question, please go ahead. Yes, Iman, thank you for your presentation so far. Um, I have a question because you, you just talked about the leadership succession uh, across and, and the different kings that, that rule, the different plans and policies. So how does the current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman compare to his grandfather, which who, who he himself has compared with, uh, you know, in 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 state media as well. So how how do are there any similarities in terms of their policies or personality, and how well does he resonate with the Saudi youth? So all yours. Thank you for this question, um, Clemens, and it's, it's, of course, a very important question because uh, when uh, King uh, or when uh, um, Mohammed bin Salman, um, of course, announced the vision and, you know, there was so much interest in, in him as a person. And slowly but surely, we realized that there are so many people who are comparing uh, also uh, Mohammed bin Salman to his grandfather or uh, King Abdulaziz. And this is, for example, one of the photos that were very much uh, circulated so much in 2016 you know, looking at the uh, physical similarities between the two. And of course, you know, because of his reforms and of course his reform programs, very, uh, um, very drastic and very different. So some people were even asking, are we witnessing a fourth Saudi state? And of course, that's a very um, genuine question because um, I think also Mohammed bin Salman was trying so so hard to emphasize that you know we can move beyond oil, and he even mentioned that you know the population or the Saudis have become addicted to oil, and of course uh, uh, that we need to just move beyond it. And he has a very famous quote where he said that Abdul Aziz and the men who worked with him for the establishment of the state did not depend on oil, and they established the kingdom without oil, and they. They ran the state without oil and they lived in the state without oil. So oil is definitely one of the factors why um, Mohammed bin Salman brings up uh, the king or, you know, there, these comparisons show up. But if we want to really look at the two side to side, um, for example, let's look first at King Abdulaziz. He really uh, relied on allegiances and loyalty. And I think sometimes people actually uh, consider the, his many marriages as, you know, one of the reasons for this is definitely to establish these allegiances among different tribes and different um, groups and different uh, important families and so on. Whereas with the Mohammed bin Salman, we see an absolute centralization. Uh, with King Abdulaziz, of course, the discovery of oil was very important. 
uh, it came in in the late 1930s. What we see here is a diversification or, you know, vision 2030, where we're trying to move away from oil. King Abdelaziz, for him, of course, at that time, religion was very important for the unity. But what we see here is rising nationalism uh, as a basis, of course, for unity. And I wrote about this uh, two years ago uh, on, you know, rising nationalism in Saudi Arabia. Um, we also see that he, you know, he, uh, King Abdelaziz got his legitimacy from religious scholars. What we see here is a move away from the traditional religious political alliance. Also, King Abdelaziz, uh, in the beginning, which was quite normal, he had, of course, or he took taxes, uh, which were, or zakat, which were later removed due to the increased oil revenue. What we see today is taxation introduced for the first time. And of course, many Gulf countries or Gulf citizens uh, were quite, uh, or, you know, it's not common to have taxation. And of course, we have that in the UAE, we have that in Saudi, uh, we have in Oman, and I think in other countries are following suit, especially I think Kuwait hasn't done that. But taxation is definitely a, a recent phenomenon, and it has increased to 15% because of the pandemic last year. So it's a definitely very interesting comparison to look at the two and to wonder if this is really um, a fourth Saudi state or a continuity, is it a rupture or not? Uh, this is of course a very different uh, discussion, but it's a very interesting one uh, as well. Um, now going back to the moderate Islam, um, of course, um, Saudi Arabia has been fostering recently a moderate Islam approach. And in 2016, uh, Mohammed Al-Isa, who you see leading the prayers here, was appointed the Secretary General of the Muslim World League. This is a very important organization in Saudi Arabia. Um, of course, um, he became very much active in promoting moderate Islam, talking to minorities, especially in the West, asking them to integrate in their societies, that it does not threaten their Islamic identity if they integrate and be part of the communities they live in. Um, he speaks weekly to the Saudi and Muslim audience on television. He started doing that last year and actually daily during Ramadan. And of course, this uh, idea of religious tolerance is very similar to what the UAE has been also pursuing recently. And I think one of the reasons why we see this interest in moderate Islam is to counter uh, other um, uh, or to counter political Islam and especially maybe the Muslim Brotherhood and so on. So this is, I think, why we have this. And of course, it is considered um, idea or, you know, um, soft power for Saudi Arabia, you know, being able to, you know, influence Muslim communities and so on. So it's very important. After all, Saudi Arabia is the land of the two holy sites. And of course, it's also trying to attract religious tourism and, you know, increase the amount of uh, uh, people who are performing or coming for Hajj and Umrah. And, and let's not also forget that religion is still very important for the population, even among the young. This is actually from a survey that was um, done last year, where uh, the youth or people between especially 18 and 24 were asked um, how important is religion to their personal identity. And in Saudi Arabia, um, 60% said that it's it's quite important. So I think um, even though we usually think that, you know, the youth, they really don't care about religion, I, I think they still do. And of course, this is why, you know, uh, there is still a balance in trying to keep this religious or, you know, religion uh, alive and uh, part of the uh, identity of the Saudi people. Now, if we want to talk about the future, um, 
now this is Qadiyya. Uh, this is a, a mega uh, project uh, being developed in the outskirts of Riyadh. It's a, a big entertainment and cultural center. So uh, there are so many projects taking place right now. Quite uh, interesting. This is Al-Ula. I, I think you also had some very nice um, uh, photos of Al-Ula Clements in the beginning. Al-Ula is becoming uh, or is, uh, is the center of many developments right now, making it a very important cultural and tourist center. So, you know, Saudi Arabia has been doing a lot, and I think uh, the emphasis is fascinating because it's a very it's a very rich historical uh, place um uh, it has also become a uh, site for Saudi artists to exhibit uh, their work and installations. This is actually from last year, I think, or actually a year before. So it's it's really becoming a very interesting um, uh, center for even artists. This is uh, from the line. This is actually a project that was introduced or uh, announced um, earlier this year. Um, it's a very interesting project. So I found a video of the project. We can uh, watch it uh, together. Contemporary cities couldn't cope with growth. The contemporary city needs a full redesign. What if we removed cars? What if we got rid of streets? What if we innovated in the public space? What if we built around nature instead of over it? What if everything you needed was always a five minute walk away? What if invisible technology generates carefree and open urban space? What if sustainability was not a goal, but a given? What if we replace outdated urban services with new services driven by artificial intelligence? What if we built the line? A 170 kilometer revolution in urban living. Protecting the Earth's most stunning nature while creating unmatched livability. A home to all of us. Welcome to the line. Neom. So yeah, uh, as as you, as you managed to see here, it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, project because it's basically a line and it has no cars and it's quite long, and um, of course it's very different from the other projects that are being um, you know developed now. But you know, uh, looking at the road ahead, and um, I think this will be my last slide. Uh, Saudi Arabia is really uh, in a in a very uh, in a transitional period, as I said. Uh, what we really, or the Saudis, are definitely hoping for is lowering the unemployment, which really increased last year to 15%, but they managed to lower it to 12.6% now. Uh, uh, percent. Um, unemployment has always been an issue. Uh, and I think one of the reasons, because of course, during King Faisal's era, as I said, you know, because of the oil boom and everything, there are so many foreign workers who came to work in Saudi. And that, of course, is a, a, allowed a very huge influx. And of course, that wasn't the case for Saudi Arabia only, but so many countries in the Gulf as well. And on the other hand, the Saudis are trying to nationalize jobs because, you know, there are so many Saudis who really want to take work, any kind of work, uh, actually. So uh, nationalization has always been uh, a policy that 
finds some kind of uh, hiccups because of course the private sector is reluctant to um, employ Saudis. Uh, they want to have cheap uh, labor uh, working for them. They find, maybe, for example, one of the reasons is that they find that Saudis are a little bit high maintenance. So um, one of the reasons or one of the issues that I think uh, the uh, Saudi government is really working on is lowering the unemployment rate. And as I said, this is going to be an ongoing process because it's really difficult to work on these two issues. And of course, Saudi is trying to attract foreign investors and foreign companies to come and uh, work in Saudi and have their bases or headquarters in Saudi. But of course, you can't really dictate who they hire and what, uh, how many Saudis they hire and so on. So as I said, this is why it's going to be a very delicate uh, position right now where the Saudis find themselves in, in this, uh, uh, you know, solving the unemployment uh, situation. Uh, as I said, attracting foreign tourists and capital is also one of the things Saudi has been trying to do, but also um, because of other, you know, domestic and regional factors, Saudis uh, or the Saudi government is uh, also trying to focus on the locals, asking the locals uh, or the local businesses to contribute more. Um, local tourists uh, or, you know, having local tourists visit the sites because, of course, and especially with COVID, you don't have many tourists obviously coming. So there is a push, and especially last year, there was a, a push to make, you know, Saudi tourists uh, instead of foreign tourists go and spend in these tourist uh, attractions. Um, of course, the other issue is balancing religion and uh, social relaxation. This is also what King Faisal was um, was um, struggling with, or maybe he also had to deal with this, because of course he was opening up the country, he was modernizing the country. On the other hand, he had a very conservative society. We have this now because, of course, we have uh, the government has allowed even more social relaxation, and um, and I think this has um, even made or created two social realities. On the one hand. And you have um, people who are living in cities, and especially Riyadh, um, who are, you know, very much vision focused, um, who are very much, you know, maybe uh, more accepting to all these different um, um, uh, events and entertainment events and so on. And you have the um, the regions where, you know, you don't see much of these changes happening in these regions, where you have people who are even, you know, more or less still conservative. And this, so I think this is, has created some kind of, a, you know, two realities and maybe made it even made, made the two different um, or uh, um, distinguished between two different social, um, uh, I would say, um, differences between, you know, uh, Saudis uh, that is growing because of these um, um, uh, changes that we've witnessed uh, recently. And, and of course, you know, following through with all these mega projects, um, this is also going to be a challenge. Even during King Abdullah's era, they started some mega projects projects that they never really managed to finish. So, you know, and then you have, of course, all these different mega projects now. For example, the line which we just saw now, it's all about, you know, not having cars. It's about, you know, very much focused on the environment. And for example, also another plan is to double the size of Riyal. And it's, um, which, you know, up to 15 million inhabitants. And it's already, Riyadh is quite, it's quite a big city. So, you know, you have uh, very two drastically different projects uh, being uh, implemented right now. So uh, maybe they're trying to test or, you know, trying to see how they can, you know, um, um, uh, which one would work or maybe they, uh, so I think right now there are so many different uh, plans that are being rolled out, but I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, maybe um, uh, uh, 
rethink some of these plans or you know try to uh, adjust them in one way or the other. Uh, I think also one issue is dealing with regional competition. Um, I think, um, of course, Saudi Arabia's vision is very much, you know, attracting tourism, uh, of course, uh, um, fostering non-oil revenues and so on. But, you know, the, the projects that Saudi Arabia is fostering are very much similar to what other Gulf countries are uh, also trying to do. So um, it's, it's very much similar. So um, there is definitely competition and it's going to be a growing regional competition, and especially, for example, between maybe Saudi and the UAE, where, you know, if, for example, tourists go to Saudi, maybe they want to, they will also go and see uh, or, you know, visit the UAE and so on. So it's not going to be, you know, focused uh, or, you know, not, not only one Gulf country is going to get it all, you know, it's going to be more or less shared between them. So um, it's definitely, uh, it's going to be an even more growing regional competition that we'll see in, in, in the coming years. And of course, meeting milestones. I think the pandemic really uh, hindered Saudi Arabia's uh, um, program and uh, of course uh, which is of course uh, normal it happened everywhere so I think meeting milestones is going to be um, also another uh, issue that they definitely have to be focused on so I uh, this is basically what I try to do now just look at all these different challenges and you know um, uh, so far especially in the diversification plans but I would uh, love to uh, hear any questions and maybe we can talk about these in more details thank you so much Thank you, Iman. That was a wonderful presentation. I think you covered the breadth of, of, of topics in terms of Saudi's move to transform the kingdom, uh, its move to move away from oil income, and also what happens to the society, what are the changes on the ground. So, so now we've come to uh, the Q&A segment. So I would like to invite our audience to put forward your questions either through the chat box, you can key in and type your question in the chat box, or you can also raise your hand with the Zoom function and we can then unmute you to, to ask your question. So whichever you prefer. But uh, I have one question of my own, so I'm going to exercise the privilege of, of the moderator to ask. And I'm going to combine it with uh, one of the questions from the floor that I see right now. So my question is about uh, moderate Islam and how well you know received it is on the ground in, in the kingdom. And also, uh, what do you think it's, it's a sentiment outside the kingdom by Muslims outside the kingdom as well. So that's my question. And, and I'm combining it with uh, uh, Prema Sumasundram's uh, question, which is, what's your view of the common critique that MBS's religious reform efforts are more of a means of curbing political opposition than a means of reining in radical clerics? So I think that's a, a handful for, for Iman right now. So I'll... I'll hand it over to you to yeah, yeah i think th this is very interesting because um between, uh, I think, uh, a little bit before 2015, maybe more or less 2015, I, uh, I think, uh, the, the Sahwa or the religious uh, awakening was very much uh, criticized so much, especially on social media. It was really subject to, um, you know, a, a campaign and lots of people were very much, and I, I think it's, it's, it could be for many reasons. Obviously, the, uh, the Sahwa scholars or, you know, the religious scene or the religious discourse was very much, um, you know, um, um, uh, maybe full of contradictions at that time. Um, religious scholars were trying to um, attract followers. They, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, they they were um, um, they had these huge um, followers on social media, and um, and of course um, they. Uh, 
I think they were also trying to um, promote change in one way or the other. Um, and of course, I think they were very much um, influenced by the Arab uprisings. If you go and even watch their interviews from 2011 to 2013, they were very much enthusiastic about change. They were trying to push for domestic change and so on. And, um, and of course, I think there were some Saudis, of course, we don't know because we don't have numbers, but there were some of these Saudis who were very critical of the religious discourse at that time. And I think in Saudi Arabia, it's fascinating. We have always these two drastic polar um, or you know, two drastically um, uh, different views. You have the conservatives on one hand and the liberals on the other. So. Um, um, the liberals, of course, we call them liberals. It doesn't mean they are, you know, liberals in the Western sense, but they are the ones who are trying to, you know, counter the religious influence. And uh, and for for a long time, the conservatives were very much, um, uh, you know, in, in, in power. And then, of course, their influence began diminishing slowly. Of course, they still had uh, very, so many followers, and especially from outside Saudi Arabia. But of course, slowly, I think um, uh, the the voices that was that were critical of the religious discourse we're given more space to criticize and criticize them and you know and, and then I think what happened is that um, this really allowed for a, you know a, a bigger clampdown on religious scholars in 2017 um, and of course it was under the pretext of reforms and so on uh, but um, I think this is why you know moderate Islam beca began to be pushed you know, to fill in this gap, maybe. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting that Mohammed al-Isa began talking to um, the Saudi audience last year. And I think there was definitely a gap uh, that, or, you know, a void, I would say, that was created when all these scholars were taken. Because you don't necessarily have to agree with them, but they really uh, were, they they really felt the intellectual uh, discussion. Uh, you know, they were always, you know, talking and speaking about things. And, you know, they always... They, they were always, you know, um, they always had a say of, about things. So when you remove all these voices, there will definitely be a void. And I think moderate Islam came in and, of course, inspired by other uh, interests, in the, as I said, in the UAE and so on, to really fill or, you know, uh, fill this void and also to promote a different, um, you know, uh, foreign um, or, you know, to show that Saudi Arabia is trying to, um, you know, uh, push forward uh, a moderate agenda. So, um, so I think uh, definitely um, the moderate Islam is a work in progress. Um, Muhammad al-Raisa was um, someone who was, of course, he, uh, he was known for, uh, for since he was, uh, even before he became the Secretary General of the Muslim World League. But he's not like, you know, other religious scholars who are, you know, outspoken and so on. So he really, you know, I think has a clean canvas where he can, you know, um, uh, promote his ideas and promote his new uh, views on religion and so on. But um, he definitely doesn't have that, you know, followers or that, you know, many followers like the others or other scholars used to have. So it's definitely, um, I would say, um, a very um, interesting um, choice. And um, um, as I said, he's becoming more and more, um, you know, outspoken, trying to, you know, attract 
in the beginning he was trying so much to attract maybe foreign uh, or you know to um he was focused on uh, foreign uh, on his foreign trips on uh, different uh, religious groups and different uh, you know religious scholars from different religions and so on but now he's really looking inwards and i think this is maybe a, a shift in focus where you know they're trying to also speak to the saudi population but yeah it's definitely a work in progress i would say and maybe it will need a few more years to know how people really view or you know think of this thank you iman so you were talking about looking inwards and we've got another question but i think this one is about regional geopolitics of, of the gulf really so this question is from babita korwani she asks how would you characterize the level of cooperation or competition between Mohammed bin Salman and the other leaders of the Gulf region, especially considering the new generation of crown princes or leaders in the Gulf? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very uh, interesting question because um, I think uh, now we see the reconciliation finally uh, that happened between uh, Saudi and other Gulf countries and Qatar. So that was a, a good uh, step forward. But definitely, I think uh, the competition, as I said, it's it's going to be there, not only for the diversification, but also for, uh, you know, uh, regional uh, issues as well. Um, and I think um, what's been happening lately is I, I think they've realized Gulf countries that they're, they're different. Uh, they're always going to be, you know, different. They're not going to have, uh, you know, uh, a, an agenda that is similar in one way or the other. They just have to live with it. And I think uh, these diversification plans or even, you know, even sports, you know, always are showing these, you know, differences between Gulf countries. And I think that's, you know, that's uh, important because we always uh, tend to, you know, look at the Gulf as one homogeneous body and, you know, people are very similar, even policies are similar, but it was never like this. And it's definitely becoming more so recently because of all these different uh, developments and how Qatar is obviously, you know, siding with different groups. And of course, the UAE is uh, maybe similar to Saudi Arabia to a certain extent. But of course, you know, and you have the Kuwaitis and the Romanis with different agendas and different ways of dealing with things. So I, I think the differences are, are here to stay. And it's just a matter of how to, you know, work around the differences and, you know, to not maybe get into confrontation like the ones we've seen in 2017. So I think that would be really the, the challenge and maybe uh, hopefully um, you know, a, a learning curve for the future. Yeah, and the reconciliation was just just not long ago. Um, we we have another question from Yo Chen Zi, and this is on on going green. So the question is, um, as a major oil exporting country, what is your view on Saudi Arabia's launch of the Green Initiative and the Middle East Green Initiative to plant ten billion trees in the kingdom and fifty billion around? the Middle East. Yeah, this is a yeah. That's a, a fascinating uh, um, plan, definitely. And I, I think Saudi Arabia has been really working uh, towards you know more uh, green uh, policy and renewables. Even uh, the um, uh, solar energy is becoming a big uh, issue now, and you know Saudi is very happy to, or it's trying so hard to you know um, push forward these uh, new um, and uh, of course these renewable energy. So we've seen so many uh, different projects being implemented recently. 
uh, and even, you know, um, uh, wind farms and so on. I think Saudi Arabia is definitely finally trying to do that. And I think it's very important because, of course, it's a huge country and there is so much sun. So definitely it makes sense to do it. I think before they never really bothered because, you know, you have oil. You don't need to really work on that. But now it's it's not only about, you know, uh, finding renewable energy, but also finding clean energy. And I think the Saudis are really working on that. And I, 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 I find it it's quite fascinating and quite important, actually. Thanks, Iman. Uh, we've got another question from my colleague, Alex, Alex Arduino. He says that, you know, the Neom Cognitive City has huge price tag. So in a post-oil scenario, will the Saudi Kingdom be able to fulfill this milestone? And how will China be able to support this, uh, this mega project? Yeah, I think, as I said in the in the slides, I think the mega projects, they have always been mega projects in Saudi. And I think it's always, you know, uh, like uh, um, even during King Abdullah's era, you know, the mega projects pop up and become a big deal. And then slowly but surely, you know, the people, they start with them and then halfway through, maybe they stop, maybe they slow down. Uh, so um, we're used to mega projects, but, uh, and I think this is, as I said, also not all uh, specifically of Saudi Arabia. We've seen other Gulf countries where they uh, start a mega project and then you don't hear about it for a long time. So uh, maybe this is because, you know, there there is a tendency to, you know, go big and then of course halfway through lose interest or realize that there are certain hiccups or, or so on. So then you stop. But I think there has been so much emphasis on, for example, Neom, so much emphasis on the Red Sea project, so much emphasis, and, and now we have the line. So there are different projects, and I said they are really different in nature. You know, you have in Neom, a futuristic city. The line is a city with no cars. And of course, as I said, Riyadh is a huge city with lots of cars. So, you know, there are definitely so many different plans being uh, proposed. And as, as I, I believe now, um, even Saudi is really, um, um, uh, currently they are rethinking some of the vision and trying to, you know, uh, introduce um, the new amendments to, you know, make the implementation easier and so on. So I think, um, of course, these plans are very ambitious and they, the government and the people know that they are ambitious plans. So I won't be surprised that at some point there might be, you know, a, a reality check here and there, you know, trying to see should we go for this? Should, should it be this big? Should we go for that? Maybe slow down certain projects, maybe push for certain projects. But I think, yeah, definitely the, the basket is full of different projects and um, um, I think lots of studies would be happy if, you know, some of them would be implemented. Of course, maybe not all, but some of them would be, would be more than Thanks again, Iman. Uh, another question from the floor by Ken Che Sim. Um, he said, thank you for your wonderful presentation. You spoke about two social realities uh, and this is about the urban-rural divide. So how can the, can the kingdom bridge this gap in lifestyle and attitudes? Yeah, I think this is, um, yeah, because, you know, when, when the uh, events or entertainment events began to be uh, introduced, they mainly focused on the capital. You know, it's obviously, you know, the population of the capital is young, is, you know, they, they are definitely maybe more uh, um, interested in these kind of uh, entertainment events and so on. So they, they really focused on the capital and it is really a big country. So it is quite challenging to, you know, change the whole mindset. So, um, so then it, it started going to other places like in Jeddah and, you know, other places and so on. And um, 
and but the small cities or the small uh, smaller regions they have their own you know maybe not so daring um, events you know some uh, very uh, low low or low key or you know very um, uh, um, not so controversial events I would say so they have their own uh, entertainment events happening there and uh, here and there but um, as I said uh, it's very different from what you see in the capital and the bigger cities and I think that's good because you know you don't want to you know alter people's life completely uh you want to start small but uh i think also people you know it, it would be different um to you know for example go to a big city and you know or a small or, uh, sorry one of these smaller towns and you know do something as big as what you see in, in Riyadh. so i think it's um what's happening is um eventually i think uh, and it's going to be obviously you know i i wouldn't want to speculate on this but um um, I, I think it, what, 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 what would happen eventually is that um, maybe, um, and of course, as I said, lots of people are moving to the capital because that's where you find work. So, you know, uh, those people who move in might, you know, maybe they're the ways they see things would uh, be different, but there would be two different realities. You know, people in these towns and cities, you know, looking in at Riyadh and the bigger cities and see what they're doing. You know, this is something that maybe they don't want. Maybe they're happy they, that they don't have it. And maybe, you know, maybe they would accept it one day, but it's definitely not affecting them and not influencing them, I would say. So maybe this is, you know, for the best for both of them and eventually, it will be normalized, like so many other things have become normalized. As I said, when I went and I issued my ID card, no one wanted to issue their ID card. And eventually lots of people started issuing their ID cards. This happened with the television, this happened with the mobile phones, all of these different technologies were rejected in the beginning and now people can't live without them. So I think they, you know, it's it's going to be eventually an, a normalization process that will definitely take some time. Thanks, a project for the long-term then. We've got three more questions, and I think we will take these three questions before we, we run up. Um, so the first one is from Dan Chi. Um, hope I got the name right. Um, Saudi Arabia's relations with Israel have radically changed, and Riyadh is now in talks with Tehran. How much of this is attributable to Mohammed bin Salman's leadership? Is this a pragmatic policy change on Saudi Arabia's part, and how has, it, how has this been received domestically? Yeah, I think the relation with Israel is quite interesting because, you know, for um, um, even in newspapers now, um, I think um, what's what's been happening is that uh, lots of people are saying that we should, um, you know, we should uh, uh, talk to Israel, uh, Saudi intellectuals saying that, you know, openly, we should talk to Israel, the Israelis are definitely, you know, uh, on the same page as us, you know, against the Iranians. But now you see uh, the crown prince talking about Iran, you know, as a neighboring country, and so on. So so I, I think um, this closeness to Israel, and as I said, you know, going back to the Muslim um, identity or the soft power, I don't think Saudi Arabia wants maybe to normalize relations now, or you know, to have this kind of normalization because of all these different issues, you know. Uh, so I, I, I think, um, but definitely the uh, in Saudi and of course in the Gulf, there is definitely more interest in talking to Israel as you know, uh, as opposed to as it was before. I would say. Thanks, Iman. We had we in the last question, we there was some mention of Tehran. And the next question really is about within the kingdom and whether there is harmony between Sunnis and Shias in the kingdom and what is the degree of harmony. 
Yeah, I think one of the virtues of this rising nationalism, I would say, is that um, the, these differences have been kind of um, um, maybe smoothed uh, in one way or the other. So I think um, you see more um, maybe, um, and I think the Shia's uh, community has really embraced or is more, I would say, interested uh, in this rising nationalism because it, it actually benefits it more than, you know, it's, uh, it pushes it away or, you know. So I think um, the the, the rising nationalism maybe played a role in a, a greater inclusion of the Shia community. Um, but of course, you know, um, um, uh, this is, of course, uh, a, a, I think a very big topic that cannot be maybe covered with a few minutes. But I would say overall, um, uh, the, 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 the nationalism that we've seen uh, recently has played a role in this uh, inclusion. Uh, so, um, but it's, uh, as I said, it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it would definitely require more time, but I wouldn't take more time uh, than uh, is allowed to me. So. Thanks, Iman. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's a loaded question. Um, one last question and that comes from my colleague Asif. And he talks about um, King Faisal and King Faisal's policies of modernization were overturned by his successor, King Khalid, who devised a formula that the antidote of extremism is more religion. So what is Mohammed bin Salman's hedging against these developments, likely developments, and overturning the fundamental contract between their flag sword and shahada, symbolizing the marriage of religion and politics? Yeah, I think what we've seen right now recently um, is, uh, and I think uh, also in the um, in the recent interview by the Crown Prince, even when it comes to you know the central centralization has become you know a, a common theme it runs through everything we've seen centralization of government we've seen centralization of different institutions now we have authorities for everything so even you know within institutions we have this centralization so you know everything runs through the government uh, bodies we've seen even as i said centralization where riyadh is becoming you know the main capital where everything is uh, you know implemented or you know or, or you know everything is happening i would say so even when it comes to religion and especially after the crown prince's last interview we've seen even further centralization where he was also talking about issues concerning religion so this is definitely a very new and different, I would say, um, uh, development where, you know, religion has become under the wing of the political authority, not separate from it, as we talked about at the beginning. It was always separate in one way or the other, you know, where, you know, the religious uh, sphere or the re religious scholars were somewhat uh, isolated, uh, you know, separated, even if they are, uh, especially the official establishment, even if the official establishment is in agreement with the government in most of the time. But there is some kind of separation. What we see right now is further centralization, also including the religious authority or you know religious interpretations of, and so on under the wing of the political um, uh, authority. So it's definitely a different way of uh, doing religion versus politics, and um, this is what uh, we've seen uh, in the last interview. So it's um, it would be a very interesting uh, development and to see how this is going to play out because. Because of course now uh, the Saudis are even uh, going to introduce um, um, a massive, um, I think, reform program to the judicial system. So all of these are going to happen later this year. And I think this is why I think maybe the Crown Prince was talking about uh, religion in his, in his last interview, because I think we will see even more reforms targeting the religious establishment, the judicial system, and even the personal status law and so on. 
of course, that was a very significant interview on, on public television. Um, so thank you for taking the time to answer the public's questions, our audience's questions. And on behalf of the Middle East Institute at NUS, please allow me to sincerely thank once again our distinguished speaker, Isimana Hussein, and also our audience for being so, you know, so you have put on your thinking caps today and given so many questions to her. And she has, of course, taken the time to answer all that. So thank you again to everyone. And we hope to see you next week on our next episode on Kuwait. The presentation title will be uh, Answering the Five W's of Kuwaiti Democracy. So we'll see you next week. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Bye -bye. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.